Welcome to the First Apostolic Church Podcast. Our church mission is to love as God loves, showing compassion to every soul, thus winning those souls and equipping them to be sent out to plant and to harvest. Thank you for joining us today, and we hope that you are blessed by today's podcast. Look at everybody's smiling faces today. You know why we say that? Because if you're not smiling, in the moment you say it, people start smiling. <laughs> so good to have you here with me. Amen. In the house of the Lord this morning. If you'll stand with me today, we're going to turn to the book of Jonah, chapter number three. We're glad to have our guests with us from different places. Some with, are with families today. And uh, some are here just, just as a guest here within our community. Others are here that have been here before and, and uh, just visiting, coming back just to visit. And so we're thankful for all those that are here, amen, this morning in the house of the Lord uh, with us. Uh, however that dynamic may be for you or how you're here, we're glad that you are here. Amen. You're free to come back any, any time. Amen. And that is always a standing policy. You're always free to come back at any time. Amen. We're going to turn to Jonah chapter number three. It's good to be in the house of the Lord. Amen. Today and with everybody. Uh, I've, I've, I've heard uh, at different times today, if, if, if anybody needs encouragement or needs complimented this morning, I've heard several times uh, Sister Sarah Johnson comment on people's outfits and how she liked that and like that. So she's in the compliment mood today. So if you need a compliment, just walk by just slowly, and you might be able to get one from her today. She is in the complimentary mood this morning. Amen. There's nothing wrong with that. Jonah chapter number three, I'm going to read the first couple of verses. And Jonah, uh, as those of you that uh, come here regularly, and uh, this is not your first time. We have been in the book of Jonah for several weeks now, and so we're continuing, but it's going to just serve a little bit of a launching pad uh, for us this morning, these first two verses, uh, because chapter number three, if you didn't read verse or chapter ones and chapter two, it would just be like you're just beginning the story. And uh, if you have read chapters 1 and 2, uh, then chapter 3 almost seems a little bit like deja vu. Have we not heard this before, seen this? And so we're going to look at it uh, today. The Bible says, verse number 1, And the word of the Lord came unto Jonah the second time. Everybody say the second time. The word of the Lord came unto Jonah the second time, saying, Arise, go unto Nineveh, that great city, and preach unto it the preaching that I bid Thee. Amen. We read in chapter number one that the word of the Lord came unto Jonah, the son of Amittai. And now he comes unto him the second time. In the first chapter, he told him to arise and go to Nineveh. This time we read again, it's almost like, man, uh, very repetitious. And we wouldn't really know much difference again if we hadn't read the first two chapters and we just started in chapter number three or if there weren't certain words used. Uh, but we know that there has, there has been failure, there has been uh, disobedience in Jonah's life, but now the Lord has come to him the second time. And for a little while this morning, I want to talk to us about the second time. The second time. Hallelujah. Can we pray right now that God would open our hearts and minds to his word this morning? Father, I come to you today. I pray, oh Lord, that you're able to help us this morning, that you could open our hearts, God, and our minds to the word of the Lord. Let that word find, Lord Jesus, a spot, Lord, of security in our life. Help us to be made better by the word today, Jesus, that it can be instructional, Lord God, for us and to us, and will not fail to thank you and praise you for it in the lovely name of the Lord. 
Lord Jesus Christ that I pray. Amen and amen. And the church say amen. Amen. You may be uh, seated this morning in Jesus' name. Amen. Fact of the matter today is simply this, and that is Jonah messed up. Jonah messed up. There's no doubt about it. We cannot uh, avoid it. We cannot, uh, you know, just kind of prune the bushes, so to speak, and not cut them down. Jonah messed up. We can't take the edge. Can't take the edge off his blatant disobedience unto the word of the Lord. That happened in chapter number one. His actions according to God's word was very deliberate. He did what he did knowing what he did. They were a deliberate affront to God. And so in many respects, Jonah failed the Lord. But having failed God, he joined himself then with countless others in Scripture prior to this book of Jonah. Men and women throughout the ages, Old Testament, New Testament alike, who have failed the Lord. For that matter, uh, we kind of tether and join ourselves with all the rest of biblical characters. I did say biblical. Biblical characters throughout God's word each and every time we personally have failed and messed up or missed the mark concerning the Lord. Because in reality, we've all failed, haven't we? To some degree, in some way, in some kind. When we read the Old Testament scripture, we see that Samson failed. We see that the one that was spoken as being the man after God's own heart failed. Peter, the preacher of the Pentecostal sermon in Acts 2, failed. Uh, We read of another character by John Mark in New Testament and others who all failed. But being that failure seems to be a very glaring feature in humanity. If we're a part of this fabric of mankind and humanity, failure somewhere along the way is going to be a part of it. Just because failure is a glaring fact of humanity doesn't excuse failure, all right? It doesn't endorse failure, all right? It's not that we we get no exemptions from failure, but just as much as we don't excuse it, we don't endorse it, neither should we empower it to be fatal for our lives. All right? And so there's a proper balance that we must have with failure. Again, not excusing it, but we don't have to empower it in order for it to have an upper hand and totally defeat us, right, in our everyday living, in our everyday lives. Years ago, and it has been years now, I I preached a sermon along the lines of our failures not being fatal. Uh, because as we are and as society is, sometimes we'll use the failure in our own lives to deflate us, defeat us to the place that we can't go forward. And if we're not careful, being a part of humanity, we will use other people's failures against them to defeat them and to deflate them. But our failures are not fatal. And that was all based upon a scripture, uh, a passage in 1 Samuel chapter 31 and verse number 3. It is the story of King Saul. It's the story of him being sorely wounded uh, by the archers on top of Mount Gilboa. The Bible says in 1 Samuel 31 and verse number 3, these words, here's Saul. He's in a battle on Mount Gilboa. He has his sons there. It's the Israelite army against the Philistine army. And the Bible says in verse 3, and the battle went sore against Saul, and the archers hit him, and he was sore wounded of the archers. Then said Saul unto his armor, 
armor bearer. Draw thy sword and thrust me through therewith, lest these uncircumcised come and thrust me through and abuse me. But his armor bearer would not, for he was sore afraid. Therefore Saul took a sword and fell upon it. Amen. And that's kind of hard to wrap our minds around. And when his armor bearer saw that Saul was dead, he fell likewise upon his sword and died with him. And so Saul's failure in all of this is that in reality, yes, he was hit by an enemy archer. He was hit by an enemy arrow. But Saul's true failure in all of this, his wounding was somewhat attached to and associated to a failure of his because Saul's failure was this. Saul was king at the time, but there was a bright-eyed young man by the name of David who there were others that had great hopes of him being king. And Saul got so focused upon David thinking that he was going to take his throne, which that was not David's heart at all, but thinking he was going to take the throne, that Saul spent most of his time being suspicious of David more so than being aware of his known enemy, the Philistines. And so he's concentrating so much on what wasn't rather than what was. He didn't really have an enemy in David. He had an enemy in the Philistines. But he was concentrating on the area where he really didn't have a problem. When he should have been concentrated on the area, he did have a problem. And so as a result of that, whenever they go to war and they go to battle, he falls prey. Amen. Saul is sorely wounded of an apparent enemy he had ignored. All right. He's sorely wounded of him. And so this wound in many regards is directly linked to his failure of not identifying the right enemy, not identifying who was really against him. And so what came about was this in Saul's estimation. He's looking at this wound. He's asking his armor bearer, hey, why don't you just go on and finish me off? Because I don't want I don't want anybody. I don't want my enemy to do this. Just finish me off. And so whenever his armor bearer didn't, the Bible says that Saul fell upon his own sword. And so in many regards, in Saul's estimation, his wound, his failure, if you will, was so large to life to him that he thought he couldn't continue to live. This, this was such a detriment to him that in his mind, his mind was telling him, you're wounded and this is linked to you not identifying the right enemy. This is your fault. This is your failure. And there's no way that you're going to get out of this alive. Because sometimes that's the way that we interpret our own failures. This is too much of a gaping hole, if you will, in my life. There's no way that I can go forward from here and ever live a semblance of life like I once lived, right? Because this has just been too bad. It's too fatal. And so Saul, he's saying, since this is so horrid, I'm just going to hasten along what's going to take place anyway because no doubt as a result of this, I'm surely going to die eventually. So why don't we just cut it off right now? And I, I'm telling you, I'm sorry to tell you today, I've seen too many cut themselves off too early from what they could have survived from. Amen. From what they could have survived from. But because of the internal and inner dialogue of a mind or even sometimes the society in which we're submerged in. 
The voices come, others come, whatever it may be. And we hear those things telling us as though we cannot survive what we have just went through or what we have failed in. But I want today to give you good news and I'm going to hit the nail on the head over and over today. There is not a failure that you face in your life, your Christian life, whatever it may be, that you can't make it through. You can get back up again, dust yourself off, and live a semblance of life that you had before the failure. Amen. Amen. And so he asked, Saul asked the armor bearer, he said, thrust me through the armor bearer. He, he, he refuses. He refuses to do so. All right. And then here's Saul. He's just there by himself. Now armor bearer refuses to do this. He's suffering with the pain of, of this wound. All right. That seems to be tied to his failure. And he couldn't stand to bear it anymore. And so he takes advantage then of his fallen state and is going to finish it off. But look what the concern of Saul is in verse number four when he relays to his armor bearer, will you just kind of finish me off? He says, I don't want the uncircumcised to come, the enemies basically. I don't want them to come and thrust me through. Look, and, and abuse. That's very important. I don't want them to come and abuse me. Right. So I don't want to fall. I've, I've failed. I got this. I've been hit by an archer and I don't want anybody else to come along and abuse me. There is not a more vulnerable place to be in than having failed and having fear that others are going to come along and abuse you because you did. Amen. He says, I don't, I, don't want, I don't want anybody to come along and abuse me. Let me tell you something, something about failure. Whenever a person has failed, nobody really has to point out that it happened. Uh, James Garfield, which was president of the United States several, several years back, James Garfield had been president of the United States uh, for less than four months whenever he was shot in the back uh, with a revolver on uh, July the 2nd of 1881. And while the president was still conscious, the doctor probed into the wound where the bullet shell went with his little finger and was unsuccessful, but he was unsuccessfully trying to detect uh, where the bullet was at and located in the president of the United States. And so over the course, over the course of the summer, there were teams of doctors that kept probing instruments and fingers into this hole inside of President Garfield's body trying to find the bullet. And through July and August, the president was just lingering and holding on to life, it would seem like, by a thread. And sometime finally in December, he died. But he did not die from a gunshot wound. He died because he succumbed to an infection that was caused by everybody else that was probing into the spot where he was originally shot. And because of the digging around, it became infected and he died. Of, he didn't die of the initial blow. He died because of everybody else, if I could say it in these terms, that were abusing. There'd be several people that would survive failure if they could survive it without other people underscoring it. Probing, if you will, 
into the open wound, trying to investigate, deduce, decide. Was it legitimate? Was it not legitimate? Well, glory. Amen. So there's many failures and wounds. I believe that a person can survive, but it's often that constant probing and abuse of others that tips the scales, right? Amen. It's always like, I don't want anybody to come around and abuse me. And so here are the facts. If we are not abused by others, then we take the row and start to abuse ourselves. And that's the reason why you don't need anybody's help because you do a good enough job all by yourself when you failed. Huh? It's kind of like the, you know, over vocal parent, you know, the kid already did wrong, but then they got to give a 35-minute speech about how it was wrong. They know it's wrong. It's okay to identify that it was wrong, but there's no need for hours and days. Well, amen. A probing, something that's could possibly be a self-awareness that they understand what took place, what they did wrong. Amen. So those type of things, though, when you get that from people around you, then it just endorses thoughts you already got going on in your head. Because if you think that I can't, I can't get up from this and all you're hearing around you is this, you know, muddying of the water and the rumor mail going, you know, I don't think they're going to, all this different stuff of abuse of people's words, then it's just going to endorse what you're already thinking in your head. Amen. And so our first, you know, for Saul, his first wound might be linked to a failure of his own, Right? But there's no reason for him to go on as he did and fall on his own sword and self-inflict because he can't get over his failure or his mistake or he's afraid that someone's going to come alongside and abuse him. Right? Because we, 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 need, we don't need people that's been made, made mistakes and failures to have to grapple for hope or have a sense of hopelessness. We need to make sure it's readily available for them. Amen. Amen. For that matter, when the words and the actions of everybody around you are not favorable, when abuse is coming verbally or maybe even otherwise, that's not very conducive for restoration. Mm -hmm. That's not very conducive for restoration. Now, that's what we preach at the church. That's what the Bible even preaches. We talk about restoration. We want people restored, so on and so forth. But that's a better speech than it is a practice. Well, glory. Boy, it's hard, isn't it, sometimes? The Bible says in Psalms 55, if you'll turn there, the psalmist David wants to speak to us here just for a moment. Psalms 55 and verse number 12. And listen, I, I just told a pastor this weekend, we was having conversation at our conference, and, uh, you know, we was talking about the aspect of, of, you know, things that happen in the church. You know, there's gossip, yes. There's backbiting, yes. Welcome to a non-perfect church this morning. All right. And uh, I said, you know what? So the only thing that gives me comfort is that whenever I read New Testament scripture, the early church, they had the very same things going on in their churches as well. And so we are just a bunch of imperfect people that come together. That, again, is not purpose for endorsing it, but neither do we need to empower it. Amen. Amen. And so the psalmist says in Psalms 55 and verse number 12, this is this is what David pins here in the scripture. He says, for it was not an enemy that reproached me. Then I could have borne it. Neither was it he that hated me that did magnify himself against me. Then I would have hid myself from him. He says, but it was thou, a man mine equal, 
my guide and mine acquaintance. We took sweet counsel together and walked into the house of God in company. So the psalmist is saying, and this is unlike Saul, because Saul was afraid of the enemy coming to abuse him. So this is unlike Saul. David is saying, he said, it, was, it, was my, it wasn't an enemy that came to reproach me. So it wasn't an enemy. It wasn't a Philistine. It wasn't somebody that I knew to be an enemy. He said, but it, it was somebody that it was someone that I had camaraderie with. It was someone that was a friend. It was someone we walked to the house of the Lord together. We took sweet counsel together. It wasn't someone that I didn't know reproached me. It was someone that I knew reproached me. Saul, he was afraid of being abused by his enemies. David says, I was surprised and became afraid because I was being abused by my friends. David says, I was reproached by my acquaintance. Someone, listen, it's quite plain. Someone I went to the house of God with. The word reproach in the psalm is this. In, in the Old Testament Hebrew language, it means to pull off. He says, I was reproached. It wasn't an enemy that reproached me. It was an enemy to pull off. In other words, what it's conveying in the Hebrew is this. It means not just to pull off, but to expose by stripping. David says, it wasn't an enemy that exposed me by stripping me. No, 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 not at all. And, and when I say this this morning, again, I don't want anybody to misunderstand. I'm not advocating that, that sin doesn't need confess because it does. That's Bible. It does. It needs, it needs repented of and it needs the forgiveness of the Lord. Amen. That is absolutely necessary. When we expose that in the sight of God, amen, he can take care of those things. But what I am sounding an alarm about this morning is that we must be cautious. Hear me clearly. We must be cautious in how we handle the guilt and the shame of another sin or failure. You hear me? Because... A lot can be revealed about our likeness to God in how we handle the guilt and shame of people's failure and faults. Whenever we read, we go all, we, we, I know, we're going all the way back to the beginning this morning. When we go all the way back to the beginning in the book of Genesis, amen, and how God dealt with Adam and Eve, that first man, that first woman, that first family, and their transgression. When we see how God dealt with Adam and Eve, the Bible, yes, you can find it recorded in Genesis 3 that there are curses against Adam. There are curses against the serpent. There are curses against Eve. There are curses, if, I, if you will, and consequences that are attached with their sin, that are attached with their transgression as a result of those things, all right? But whenever we look and God made the coats of skins and clothed Adam and Eve. God in that moment was dealing with their shame and their guilt. He did not leave them stripped. He did not leave them exposed. He covered them. He dealt with their sin through the consequence, but he dealt with their shame and guilt through the covering. I wonder if we can leave the sin aspect to God but be partners with him in the covering aspect of the shame and the guilt that happens when somebody fails. Amen. Someone say amen. And I, I think Adam and Eve's response is very telling today in the book of Genesis. 
Because we read after their transgression, after they did deliberately against the word of the Lord, what had been spoken, amen, the Bible says, and, and many of you know this, if, if anybody's ever read anything, they've read Genesis, you know, anybody that starts a new Bible reading program, you're at least going to get through, you know, a few pages of Genesis before you bail out, you know, and so you've at least read chapter three of Genesis, amen, and the Bible says Adam and Eve's response whenever they had sinned and they realized now that they were naked, right, and now there is some shame with this. They're afraid. The Bible says that they, they made aprons out of fig leaves and they sewed them together, amen, to, to, to hide. All right, listen to me. I don't believe that's so much for them to hide their sin as much as it was to hide their shame and to hide their guilt. They wanted to hide that. And yet whenever God came in the garden in the cool of the day and asked them where they were and they had even hid themselves a little further among the trees, God didn't come down and reproach them. God didn't come down and expose them. God dealt with their sin, but he dealt with their shame and guilt as well in two different ways and measures. Amen. Someone say amen. And so it's telling, it's revealing then in our likeness with God then how we are in our dealings with other people's guilt, shame, failure, and mistake. Please note, Genesis chapter number nine, we march on just a little bit further. In Genesis chapter number nine, we have the story of, of the flood and of Noah and his three sons and they come off the ark and the waters have subsided and everybody is thankful that that has taken place. But not long, at least as it would be uh, portrayed in scripture, not long after the flood waters have subsided, the Bible tells us, and I'll, I'll start with verse number 20 of Genesis nine. The Bible says, and Noah, this is the builder of the ark, right? This is the one that's a, the preacher of righteousness. Huh? Him and his family have been working on this ark. Nobody else was saved upon the ark except those eight souls. But here's Noah. He gets off the ark. Even when he gets off the ark, he's built an altar to the Lord. But here he is now. Right? And Noah began to be a husbandman. And he planted a vineyard. And he drank the wine. And was drunken. And was uncovered within his tent. I always like to say that Noah kind of got drunk on his own success. Uh, he, 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 he planted his vineyard and he drank of it and he's just kind of intoxicated, amen, on his own. And he's uncovered within his tent. He's uncovered. From Genesis forward, anytime there was barrenness or, or uh, uncovering in Scripture, it normally is associated with shame and, and things of that nature. It was a shameful thing to be uncovered. Although here is, and please note this, Noah is uncovered within his tent. But here we have two different reactions that people have whenever people, if you will, have failed or they are exposed. You got two options. When someone's exposed, make light of it or do something about it to help. The Bible says in verse 22 and, and, or yes, 22 and Ham, the father of Canaan, saw the nakedness of his father. Look at his first order of business and told his two brethren without. What Ham discovered in private, he made public. Woo. There's dad there. He's exposed. But rather than doing anything about it, he talked about it. 
Noah's there exposed in the confines of his tent. This is a very private matter. But whenever Ham leaves the tent and starts talking, it becomes a very public matter. Amen. Now look, look, look. That's, that's, one, that's one way to respond. But look at verse 23. After that Shem and Japheth have learned of this, Shem and Japheth took now a garment, right? And it, Can you help me, Bridget? Shem and Japheth heard about this, which they wouldn't have known about if Ham hadn't opened his mouth, first of all. Here's Daddy over here uncovered in his tent. Shem and Japheth now having knowledge of this, they don't walk into dad's tent face forward to go gaze and gawk at the nakedness of their father. The Bible says they grab a garment. Grab that, will you? And they walk in backward. Look at the scripture. They went in backward. Because we're not interested in seeing him and his shame. We're not interested in seeing him and his guilt. We want dad to be restored. And they walk in backward and they lay the garment upon their father. What are they doing? They're not being a reproach to dad. They're being quite the opposite. They're covering. They're covering dad. Ham goes out and talks about it. Shem and Japheth goes in and says, what can we do to help? Because this doesn't have to be the finality of dad. This is not what everybody needs to remember dad by. He just built the ark, was a preacher of righteousness for so many years. Let not this mark do away with all the good of the formative years. Folks, we are allowing failures and mistakes to be the demarcation of lives that did great and never had, if you will, a mark in our eyes upon them. But we're defining them by a moment when we needed to find them by a lifetime. cooler without it anyway amen and so there are there are there are two responses two responses two different reactions one discovers a failure tells others doesn't do anything to help he reproaches if you will dad's already exposing the tent he goes out and tells others what is he doing he's further exposing amen he's further exposing however Shem and Japheth, the Bible doesn't say they told anybody. But they enter in and they help. They don't abuse the situation. They don't abuse Noah in the situation, right? They want the shame. They want this humbled state of their father within the confines of his tent to be covered. Someone say amen. So I asked you then this morning, who, who in that story of Genesis 9 was more like God? Ham who told others or Shem and Japheth who covered the nakedness? Because the scripture goes on in verses, uh, scripture goes on, and let me just go, I start with verse 23, Brother Mason. And Shem and Japheth took a garment and laid it upon both their shoulders and went backward and covered the nakedness of their father. And their faces were backward, and they saw not their father's nakedness. And Noah woke from his wine and knew what his younger son had done unto him. And he said, Curse became the servant of servants shall he be unto his brethren. And he said, Blessed be the Lord God of Shem and Canaan shall be his servant. Amen. And so in that moment, one was cursed, the other was blessed. All of how they reacted to an individual's mistake. 
Amen. If you go back to Psalms 55, and I'm turning back and forth here this morning, so let your fingers do the walking. But if you go back to Psalms 55 and verse number 12, uh, the scripture tells us here something that I think is worthy of investigation. The Bible says these words. It says, for it was not an enemy that reproached me, then I could have borne it. He says, then, then I could have borne it. In other words, David says, I could have dealt with it if it was an enemy. You know why David says that? He says, because that's what I expect from an enemy. I've said it before, and, and, and this is real, but, you know, whenever, you know, in Odin days, whenever knights got together with the brotherhood, they didn't feel like they had to have on their breastplate and their helmet. Because they're among comrades. And so we can make ourselves vulnerable around them. And so it would be a surprise to be plunged through in a place where you ought to be able to feel comfortable. Amen. David said if it was an enemy, he said, I could have bore it. I would have expected it. He said it would not have taken me by surprise had it been an enemy. He says, but this violation that I'm telling you about, he said, is amplified because it came from somebody I trusted. It came from somebody that was a friend. He says, we took counsel together. You know what that means? It means that they were open with one another. They, they had opened up their lives to one another. They, they had become vulnerable in the presence of one another. And then, boom, all of a sudden, the person they've been vulnerable with exposes everything. Huh? Amen. Exposes everything. And if we can't be cordial with one of our own, what hope do outside observers have, believe they have, when they see that? Genesis 13. Genesis 13. I'm not walking all the way through the book of Genesis. I'm just, you know, put your nerves at ease. Genesis 13 and verse number 7. Abraham and Lot. Relatives. They're on their way to at a point in time. Abraham knew not where he was going, but God had him on a trip. He meant to head to Canaan. But nonetheless, in Genesis chapter 13 and verse number 7, the Bible says there was a strife between the herdmen of Abram's cattle and the herdmen of Lot's cattle. All right? They both have substance. They both have herds, and there's a little spit spats that's beginning to take place. And the Bible says the Canaanite and the Perizzite dwelled then in the land. And Abram said unto Lot, let there be no strife, I pray thee, between me and thee, and between mine herdmen and thy herdmen, for we be brethren. We be brethren. Now note, the scripture makes a little note here. I think it's interesting to point this out. It tells us about there being strife between the herdmen in verse number seven. And it throws in there before it's all said and done. And the Canaanite and the Perizzite dwelled then in the land. Now, folks, this is more because of the way in which it's situated in these verses. That little piece of information is more than information regarding, well, you know, this is how many different people we have in the land. And everybody's competing, you know, for a piece of the land, for the grazing of their herds and their flocks, so on and so forth. That little piece of information is more than just trying to inform us about how many people's competing for the grazing of the land. It's couched right here in the verse. They're talking about strife, and then Abraham goes back talking about 
strife between him and his brother and how it need not be. And what's going on here is Abraham wanted Lot, amen, to be sensitive to how they treated each other as brothers because there's outside observers. There's outside observers. There's the Canaanite, there, there's the Perizzite bearing the land too. We're not just in here by ourselves right now. There's other people observing how we're treating one another. And he says we can't have strife between me and you because we are brothers. Because if we have, I have strife with you and you're my brother, what's going to make them think I won't have strife with them when they're not my brother? Because how in the world can I love uh, somebody that's not my brother and not love the one that is my brother? It's kind of like the same in the New Testament scripture. How can you, you, know, how can you love God whom you have not seen and yet hate the one who you have seen? He says, we got, we got to be careful. We're, we're brothers. We, 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 we. Because here's the thing, Lot, how, how, how I treat you, right, and how I deal with this strife, let's take it back to, to Saul. Let's take it back even to Jonah, all these different characters. How we treat and deal with failure and restoration within the church, all right, within the body of people that called believers, it will set the threshold on how the world will perceive, will deal with their faults, their failures, and their reconciliation. Amen? See, here's the thing. Everybody, when we're born into this life, we need reconciled to God. That's New Testament scripture. Amen? To it that God was in Christ, reconciling the world to himself. We all need reconciliation. But along the way, we make failures and mistakes, and we need restoration. But if we don't know how to restore well, they may think we don't know how to reconcile either. Because the Bible says in New Testament, 2 Corinthians 5, that he gave to us the ministry of reconciliation. But if we don't handle restoration well with our brothers, are they going to be able to handle reconciliation with someone that's not their brother? Amen? Everybody doing okay? Just give me a nod if you're doing all right. Amen. Hallelujah. <laughs> Amen. So Abram's like, we, we, we got to be cautious here. We got to be cautious here. Now, and uh, let me walk down here because when I gave you my jacket, I gave you something that absorbs perspiration on my brow. <clears throat> and, and I know this is somewhat cautioning today, but, and, but I think it's good every once in a while that we go back and we touch on this. And that is, that is this. Failure, mistake, faux pas, whatever you want to call it. The outsider, right? whether you're truly outside or a member of the body of believers and somebody, some other believer has a failure or a mistake. Caution us today because there is a difference. Listen to me clearly. And the humility of the person that made the mistake and us wanting humiliation of the person. That made the mistake. There's difference between humility and humiliation. Someone say amen. They both come from the exact same root word, but they are on opposite ends of the spectrum. There's a difference between, you know, I just uh, I don't really sense no humility. When in reality, sometimes what we're really meaning is that I don't see them humiliated. Oh, boy. Because they're different. 
Because humility is one that the one that made the failure, the fault does. Humiliation is something that somebody does to you. Humility is a modest opinion. Just direct definition from the dictionary. Humility is a modest opinion of one's own importance, right? Humility is the person makes this mistake and the faux pas, and they have that sense, if you will, of humility, amen, that self-awareness, if you will, modest opinion. You know what? I did do wrong. But then there's humiliation. Humiliation is to cause a painful loss of pride, self-respect, or dignity, and I fear sometimes what we're going for, we say they haven't humbled themselves, but what we really mean is that we've not yet seen them grovel in humiliation. What we really mean is this, they've not heard enough yet. They've not suffered enough yet. And in doing so, all we are is the abuser on the sideline. Because you don't live in their head. Hello? You don't live in their tent. You don't know the mind games that they have battled. And because they come into the house of the Lord and they still try to raise a hand in worship, then we think, well, they, they're just not humble yet. You know, it might not be anything about humility. It might just be because whenever wolves smell blood, they attack. Why can't we just take it that they made a mistake? They know it. You know what they're just trying to do? They're just trying to get back in relationship with God. But no, we got to stand over here. Say, look at them over there. They act like they didn't even do anything. Well, how do you want them to act? Hey, they can repent. That's great. But I don't have to tie them to the altar that every service they come in, they got to get down there and they got to repent over something they already repented over again and again. You know what that is? That's us wanting them to be humiliated. Say amen. And whenever we get to that mode, that's us doing it to them. That's us doing it to them. I don't. I don't want to cross that line. We. We. We don't. We. We want people to be humble. Yes, uh, concerning their failure, but that's their 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 opinions and such of themselves. We want people. Amen. Sometimes we go wrongling. We want them to be humiliated with their failure. Right. We tend to argue that if they've not shown enough humility, Amen. If they've not shown enough, then then you know we got to take it on ourselves and make sure the job gets done. Whenever we step in, all we are doing is humiliating. Someone say amen. Hmm? And problems arise sometimes because, oh, God, help me. I'm sorry to be, you know, I've been traveling here and there here lately, but the problem arises sometimes because it may have been a private matter, but you got wind of it. However, a ham went into the room, came out, and you got wind of it. And you're not satisfied until the private matter can be made a public matter. Someone hear me right now? You know what I'm of the estimation of? That if I learn of a private matter and it can remain a private matter, and repentance and forgiveness can take place, and nobody's more the wiser, I think that's success. Mm -hmm. But no, 
Some believe there is no justification. There is no humility unless we make private matters public matters. Glory. Let me tell you right now, in the past 10 years that I've pastored here, there have been things go across the radar that there's people in the church never knew one thing about that were private matters. And I just went in the tent. There was never a word spoken. There was nothing visibly necessarily seen, known, amen, or perhaps even picked up on that was done. And you know what? They're restored. They're living for God. They got forgiveness in their heart. Amen. Nobody was none the wiser and everything's okay. Someone say amen. I, I, I use this phrase quite frequently. I did even this week. I was in different board meetings and such, and there were some things, and I said, well, here's my, here's my uh, uh, rule of thumb of life. I said, uh, pertaining to things that are, that are private matters or unknown by most, if not all people, I said, if you shine light on anything, I said, you're going to attract bugs. If you shine light on it, you're going to attract bugs. And so if we can deal with it without the light, then we can eliminate all the other matters that may precipitate as a result of that. Amen. Amen. So restoration. Note, with Shem and Japheth, back to their father Noah, look at this. Noah was exposed in his tent. Ham opened his mouth, made it public. But Shem and Japheth, they offered restoration. And where did the restoration take place? In the privacy of the tent. They covered up that restoration took place in the privacy of the tent outside a public eye. Away from public eye. Amen. No doubt we can take care of those things. There, yes, there needs to be contrition. And yes, there needs to be humility. Amen. That estimation of themselves. But everybody didn't have to know about it in order for restoration to be effective. Amen? Amen. <laughs> now, is everybody doing okay? Let me check my time here. Now, that is not to say, listen, private matters can be handled privately, but if you do a public matter, then it's probably going to have to be handled. We've got biblical precedents for that from Numbers chapter number 20. The Bible had spoke to Moses that he should speak to the rock and that the water would come forward for the watering and the thirst, if you will, of Israel. But in Numbers chapter number 20 and verse number 11, the Bible says this, and Moses lifted up his hand and with his rod, he smote the rock twice and the water came out abundantly. I'm turning there, but I'm reading off the back screen. I'm cheating. All right, going on to verse number Verse number 12, I'm getting there, I'm trying to. And the Lord spake unto Moses and Aaron. He said, because you believe me not, he says, to sanctify me, look, in the eyes of the children of Israel. Therefore, you shall not bring this congregation to the land. Here, God's saying, whenever you smote the rock, which was going against my command of speaking to it, you did that in the eyes of the public of all the congregation of Israel. He says, so that was a public matter. I'm going to have to take care of the public matter privately. He said, since you did in the eyes of Israel, this is what's going to happen. Had you did this in a private way, we could have taken care of this differently. All right? So I don't want anybody to think, well, bless God. We're just No, no, no. There's things that are, are uh, modes and times that are good for the privacy and good for the public. It's according to all what took place.
place. Now, I'm going all the way back to 2 Samuel, and you don't have that, Brother Mason, I don't think, maybe. 2 Samuel chapter number 1, we left Saul there in his business. 2 Samuel chapter number 1 and verse number 9. Because we understand in Scripture the ending of 1 Samuel was Saul and the archer and falling upon his sword, all right? And where the Bible says in the 31st chapter that Saul was dead, all right? Uh, Hebrew language is a little bit weird, and sometimes it doesn't always get translated quite appropriately. It wasn't that he was already dead, but he was dying or in the process of dying, all right? So there was still some hope there. So we understand then in First Samuel, Second Samuel chapter number 1, David, an Amalekite, comes to him relaying really what went with Saul, how he died. And so Saul, whenever he fell on his own sword, even didn't get the job done right? The, 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 the spear from the archer didn't get the job done. He still got some life in him, although he had quote unquote failed, right? And this is what the Bible says in verse nine of first Samuel or second Samuel chapter number one in verse nine, he said unto me, this is the Amalekite relaying the story to David. He, the, he is Saul said unto me, stand, I pray thee upon me and slay me for anguish is come upon me because my life is yet whole in me. Wait a minute. Saul, the one that's been wounded, and his wounding is in part as a result of his own failure. He's telling this guy, and he's fell on his own sword because he's like hasten, you know, don't want to be taken by the abusers. He says to this guy, he says, take me out because I'm in anguish, I'm in pain. Failure does that. Mistakes have that. But the key to it all is this. He says, my life is yet whole. Failure doesn't have to be fatal. Failure doesn't have to be the end of the story. Failure doesn't have to be the washing of the hands and say, well, just forget it. Too far gone. His life was yet whole in him. And so the man talks about how he stood upon him and he slew him in verse 10 because he was sure. This is the mentality we deal with. For he was sure he could not live after he was fallen. That's what we're battling today. In the world, in the church, it matters not. Oh, there's no way. There's no way they're going to be able to go forward after this. No way. Well, folks, if that's the case, then Samson Harris should have never started to grow again and strength come upon him in his final hours to be able to push the pillars upon all of his enemies. If that's the case, David should have never arose from his sin of adultery with Bathsheba, having put hands of scripts for the life of Uriah and went on to be Israel's best and most gracious kings. If that's the case, Peter should have never stood on the day of Pentecost and said, men and brethren, you must repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ for the remission of your sins, and ye shall receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. If failure is supposed to be the end of the story, we should have never had the results of Samson, should have never had the results of David, should have never had the results of Peter. But you know what that does tell me? That there is life after failure. There's life after mistake. There is the second time. Amen. There is the second time. And if you'll stand, we'll kind of wrap this up real neatly here back with Jonah. Because whenever I read the opening verses of Jonah chapter number three, again, it is almost like deja vu. It's like I'm reading almost, and it is almost, really in the Hebrew language, it's almost the exact same words and account that was given in Jonah chapter number one. 
You know, Scripture talks about in the New Testament that the Lord is the author and the finisher of our faith. Of all the things that he is, he's just a great writer of a story. He's the author and the finisher. And at Jonah's, at Jonah's realizing that, you know what, he had ownership in what took place that we studied in chapter number 2. And his admission that salvation was of the Lord. And this mode of repentance in Jonah's life, it's as though God is hitting the reset button. And we're rewound all the way back to where he first made his mistake. And comes again the word of the Lord now the second time to Jonah. With similar and almost exact instruction that he gave the first time. What is it? It's that second time. It's that second chance. It's a God that says your mistake is not the end of your story. Your failure is not just going to keep you constantly, if you will, held and enchained in the past. And there's no going forward from there. No. He says we're going to start right where you... You failed and see if we can pick up again. And we're going to try to go forward. I said this this week on Facebook, and there's a little bit of, uh, I guess, interest in it. And so I say it this morning as I end, and that is this. So Jonah comes. There is a sense of restoration. He is on dry land. He is at this point going to be heading toward Nineveh as he was originally prescribed by God. And as a result of that, all of these Ninevites, all these Ninevites are going to be fasting. They're going to be in sackcloth. They're going to be humbling themselves before the Lord. The king down to the beast are going to be doing this because God came the second time to one man. And that one man had an impact on the whole city of Nineveh. Amen. One man who had made a mistake and a failure was given restoration and a second chance. And he had an impact on a whole city of Nineveh. And the question that I posed to Facebook friends that I had was this. How many Jonas have we missed linked revivals to? Because we weren't willing to restore them after their failures. Because I believe they're out there. It's not over. Yeah, you had a bump in the road. Yeah, the, the breath was knocked out of you, so to speak. But you find the Lord in a place of contrition with a repentant heart and God will forgive. But he'll also offer covering for the shame of the guilt. And I want to join him in being part of the church, not as an abuser, but as one that says, you know what, I think you can stand back up. I think, I think we can cover this shame and this guilt and you can get back on a road of recovery. I think you might be able to start where you left off with God's help. Hallelujah. Amen. Can we close our eyes all across this building today? Hallelujah. Can we close our eyes? He is the God of the second time. He is the God of the second time, the second chance. And I'm thankful that he is today. And we want to create an environment. Amen. And I know there will be times that we'll struggle with it. And there will be times that we'll get it right. And there will be times that we'll get it wrong. But our hope and aspiration is to create an environment in the church. Amen. That if you're going to fail anywhere, the church is a good spot to fail. Because there will be people there that will help help with garments on their shoulders and walking backwards and cover it up. Amen. And help hopefully give words of encouragement. Amen. To help you steer back on the path. Amen. Not only is God fighting for you, we want every member of this body. Amen. To be fighting 
for you, not against you, but for you. We don't want to be enlisted as the abusers. We don't want to be the one that sweet, took sweet counsel with you and all these other things. And if you will, acted as, as an enemy towards you. No, no, no. We want to encourage you, sir or ma'am. It doesn't matter what may have shattered your past. Amen. And it may be a private matter. It may be a public matter. But I want you to know that there is grace and mercy that is found here. Amen. Do you need to make things right with God? Absolutely. But do I necessarily have to stand over here with my arms crossed, looking down my nose, and I'm like the all-knowing and God to know, well, you know what? They just haven't suffered a lot enough. They just haven't went through enough. Or they just haven't. And, and be the gauge for whenever you have done that? Not really. Not really. But I do want to be a blanket. I don't want to be a reproach to you. I want to be a, I want to be a friend to you. I want to be a hand of help. Amen to you. This altar is open today to anybody. It doesn't matter. You could be of either side of this fence today. You might have some failures and mistakes, private or public, that you need to come to the Lord about. Or you might be someone that at different times, you more than desiring someone's humility, you've desired their humiliation. And you've just checked your spirit this morning and said, you know what, uh, Lord, I, I, just, I just come before you and I open myself to you. I, I'm not, I don't want to be on this train or this wagon of, uh, of wishing for people's humiliation. God, I want to leave. God, the consequences the Lord of whatever it was in their life to you but I want to be an aid and I want to be a help Lord in covering I want to be an aid and I want to be a help Lord Jesus in providing if you will safety God for those that have walked the Lord roads and had hardships I pray oh God today he's here he's a God of a second chance he's a God of a second chance a second time hallelujah he's coming to us today each and every one of us none of us can escape if you will failure none of us can escape fall oh yes in our mind's eye others seem to Oh, it's so much worse than this one. But the reality is failure is failure. Mistake is a mistake. And we all need to find the hands of a God that is willing to forgive. Amen. And take us in close into his bosom and wrap his arms around us. And we need to be his body. The church is the body of Christ. We need to be his body, his arms, his legs. We need, if you will, amen, to pull them in close and give them hope whenever they're feeling hopeless. Amen. Speak positive things into their life whenever they have all this negative dialogue going on in their head about how they can't make it and it will never be the same and so on and so forth. Hallelujah. Will someone talk to the Lord this morning? Amen. Can we be that for people that are in need? Can we be that? Amen. For one another. Amen. And we may be picking somebody up off the ground today but tomorrow somebody might be picking us up off the ground and I want to have the proper perspective right now. Hallelujah Jesus. Hallelujah Jesus. Thank you for listening. If you would like more information about our services and activities, you can find us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter with the username FACMC. Again, that's FACMC. Thank you, and have a blessed day.